mentioned and his beautiful illustration of uh, being a shadow over. Jesus is that close to us. Um, if you take nothing away, uh, and nothing else away, but this, that God is our fortress. God is our refuge. And we are really good at putting up walls in front of us, but the purpose of a refuge or a fortress is that it surrounds us and guards all of our blind spots and weak points. And so our God is a God who is able to not only protect us and shield us from what is in front of us, but he guards us where we are most vulnerable. That's the God that we have worship and pray to. Um, so I'd encourage you to uh, take that with you uh, as, we, as we pray through. Verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So this psalm is showing us how God is our refuge in the midst of trouble. This first section shows us God as a refuge and strength, even as the physical world around us is in chaos. And we can say chaos because uh, notice what's being moved, right? It's not a lawn or a tree. Um, it's the elements of nature that sort of mark the boundaries of beginning and end, right? Of where you can and cannot go or where you need to change the way you're going, mountains and waters. So the, um, the image is literally the world coming undone. And if, you've had, uh, if you're a homeowner, you might have experienced this. I have a, a crack going through my back porch. It's a concrete crack. And I have looked at it every day for uh, the past like six months, just slowly grow larger and larger and larger. Um, and uh, I just stare out the back door, and I look at it, and I'm filled with anxiety, and I walk away. And our back door becomes harder and harder to close. Um, and, uh, and so there's this little shift, but definite shift my house is undergoing, and I am powerless to stop it. Um, well, you know, some of you are less powerless. Some of you know. But I am personally <laughs> powerless to stop it. And, and so imagining, you know, this little shift in the ground underneath our home um, it causes me great anxiety and thinking about the, the mountains and the seas um, being moved, uh, the chaos that that means. Um, and yet, and yet, we do not fear. We are not undone by it. There is a river, picking up in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So this next section sort of moves us to a clear picture, I think, of the refuge. Um, the, the camera, if you will, is, is moving from the refuge and strength to now a clear image of the city of God. It is a place where God dwells. It is the place of God's help through trouble. And so you notice here that the waters are not raging, but instead a river that makes glad the city. Rather than threatening life, the waters are sustaining it. And notice, too, that where the threat was nature and upheaval in the first section, it is now nations and kingdoms raging and tottering. And so, again, um, these borders, right, these markers of life, right, nations, uh, communities, um, governments, 
these, these things that sort of mark beginning and ends and frame the way we think about the world are coming undone. And yet, God raises his voice and it all comes to nothing. The raging and tottering are melted down. And then we pick up in verse 7 a refrain that will be repeated in verse 11. A reminder, God is our fortress. The God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of Jacob is with us. Picking up now in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And here's the refrain again. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So the final section begins with a beckoning to come and behold the works of the Lord, to see the desolations he has brought. And we're led to see what the desolations are. He, make, he makes wars to cease. He breaks and shatters and burns with fire all the weapons of war. And then the psalm ends with the voice of God ringing through for the first time. Right? And we see that. It just comes unannounced. And often this is the way uh, biblical narrative goes. We don't have a, then God said, although that does happen. But um, in this case, it's just the voice cracks through. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And it's not entirely clear who God is speaking to here. Um, and for many people, as I was reading about the psalm, this is uh, a hot debate. We will not get into that debate this morning. Uh, but um, is he speaking to the us in verse 7? Uh, or is he speaking to the raging world? I don't think there's a clear sign, but I think that it seems to me that the call to be still, we can borrow the words of Jesus, who, he who has ears, let him hear. I think that's how we can think about it, right? Be still and know that I am God. Um, Derek Kidner, the commentator, says that what we can know about this, these words is that the language indicates not a gentle call, not a way you might say that to a, um, a child you're trying to put to sleep, um, but it's a rebuke. Maybe you rebuke your child when they're not going to sleep. I don't know. But uh, in this case, um, it's, it's a rebuke. It's not a gentle call. It's, it, it should remind us of when Jesus comes up on the deck of the boat and declares and, and calms the wind and the waves and says, be still. It's the, same, it's the same language. It's the same tone. So this picture is painting a picture of two different places to be in a world full of trouble. On the one hand, one life abides in the protection and refuge and fortress of God, and the other is in the chaos of creation exposed to the judgment of God. But it, there's, also, there's another story being told here um, that we don't have all the pieces to. And forgive me, I didn't read the, uh, the beginning uh, piece uh, at the top of the psalm, uh, where, it, where it says, um, the sons of Korah, of the sons of Korah. Thank you. To the choir master of the songs, sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So everything in here is about the, the, the musical arrangement, um, aside from uh, the note of, of the sons of Korah, being the, 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 uh, the authors, the, those who, who composed the poem. Um, who were the sons of Korah? Well, if you dig into numbers, as you know, we're, we frequently do, right, in your spare time, um, 
you find that Korah is, is there, and it turns out that Korah, um, along with 250 others, rebelled against Aaron and Moses in the wilderness. And they, they, there's a standoff that's arranged uh, between Aaron, uh, Moses and these rebels, who basically are saying, um, essentially it boils down to, we think that you guys are not God's chosen. We want a piece of that glory and honor. Um, so we're, we want to take it away from you. And Moses says, no, 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 let's, I'm not going to argue with you. Let's put the judgment in God's hands. Um, and, and so we, we pick up, Moses has basically said, let God judge. And then we pick this up in Numbers 16, uh, 31 to 35. And as soon as Moses had finished speaking all these words, basically saying, we're going to let God decide who his chosen leaders are, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down to, to alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came from out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So, The sons of Korah are the sons of this man and his band of rebels. uh, These are not likely uh, psalm writers in my mind, right? Or psalmists. Is that a psalmist? Psalm writers. Psalters. So it would seem that the sons of Korah perished along with their father as rebels against the Lord. But that's not the case. Later in Numbers, we we realize that that they did not perish. the Lord calls for a census of the people. And so picking up in Numbers 26, um, this is the, as the census is beginning. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abram. These are the Dathan and Ab- Abram, Abram, excuse me, chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. When they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them together with Korah. When that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. This is an amazing truth about this psalm, is that God spared the sons of Korah, the sons of this man who stood against God and his chosen servant, in a dramatic way, the earth swallows their father, and then they go on to compose these psalms of God being their refuge and strength. And I take such comfort in that because I have a lot of griping to do with God about my life. Right? I have a lot of things I think he should have done differently. I have a lot of things I wish he would do differently, or I wish he could go back and fix. And so it's a comfort to us, church, to know that the Bible is not, composed, not written by people who have not known suffering and what seems like evil and, and it seems like God doing them wrong. It's written by people who have known deep suffering and wrong and hardship. And so these sons become servants of God. They compose several psalms. The sons of a rebel who was literally swallowed up by the earth became instruments of God. The same God who judged their father is the same God they call refuge here in this psalm. So, this prayer acknowledges a world full of trouble, but it's, uh, acknowledges a world full of trouble, but it's also a witness of faith. How did the sons of Korah move from such an event to call God a refuge? 
in suffering and prayer, we deepen our love for God. There is a place, there is a God who calls us to himself so that when the world comes undone, we are not swept away and destroyed. We need not fear, brothers and sisters, because God is our refuge. So let's, let's look now um, at how God is our refuge. How does that, how does that happen? How does that work? Um, and forgive me, um, the outline is not really going to match up. But hopefully you can sort of, one, two, three, stay with me. Um, so the first thing to see that, that this prayer, how do we get to this place of God is my refuge even as the world comes undone? The first thing to see is that this prayer asks nothing. I don't know if you noticed that. It took me several times to read it through. I expect prayer to ask something. This prayer asks nothing. It is a prayer that just states what is rather than asks for something to be. Now, there are plenty of prayers that ask for things. There are plenty of the Psalms that ask God to rescue us, to deliver us. And so I'm not suggesting that this is the only way to pray, but it's another way to pray. We pray, as the Psalm leads us here, we pray to name what is true, to set out the landscape before us. This is what is true. And if you're like me, you, you struggle with this, especially when you come to language that you can't own, right? I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've never read how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, and be like, yeah, like I'm 100% there, right? I mean, there's been moments for sure, right? Um, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. There are moments. But I'll tell you, most of my life, I am not feeling that, right? I'm not feeling it. I'm not... I'm not, I, I'm not jumping up and down when I'm going to work in the morning. I'm just like, Lord, I'm in your courts. It's all good, you know. There's no problems. These middle schoolers, it's going to be fine, you know. I don't, so when I read these, I, I'm confronted with, okay, I don't feel that way. Um, and it's hard to know how to align myself with that experience. And I think part of our problem, and this might not be the, the, the camp you're in, so hang in there with me. Part of the problem, my problem, is I'm obsessed with authenticity. This idea of the authentic, the genuine article, right? I am prone to not do something unless I can feel it truly reflects who I am, unless I'm, I'm 100% aligned, right? And I don't know if you've picked this up in the marketplace, right? The general product marketplace, right? They're not selling you the thing anymore. They're selling you the mission, the ethos, right? Um, because... When you buy into the product, you buy into the mission. The mission reminds me that I should buy that product, and so you know, I'm on that nice little carousel there, right? Um, and I'm, I'm hook, line, and sinker. Like, I'm all in, you know. I want to know where that meat came from, what farm, you know, the name of the farmer. And if I buy into it, then I'm like, then I'm, going, you know, I'm re eating the right food, and then everything's in place, and I'm living a good life, and I'm taking care of it, you know. So I, I'm, I'm obsessed with authenticity. And this tends to create a chasm, this, this gap between not only how the act itself, but also between what we think of ourselves and others, right? Um, so when I'm not feeling it, when I'm not feeling better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, I imagine, though, that everyone else is feeling that, right? I imagine that everyone else is reading these prayers with 100% authenticity. And I imagine that the other saints who have gone before me um, have not had any doubts they, they've, they've never been without a lack of feeling. Um, 
And so the, the, the further and further I walk down this road, the, the further and further away the call to being a disciple becomes, right? The more and more it becomes for somebody else or something else. It becomes distant and practical and impossible. And, and why? What's, what's underneath that? I think, in part, it's that for many of us, we've become to rely on our feelings to guide our doing. Right? The hard question is, what difference does it make for me this morning if I feel like God is my refuge versus saying God is my refuge? Now, I'm not dismissing or belittling feelings. I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to do that, I should say. <laughs> you may be feeling that I am, but I am not trying to. Um, our emotions, how we feel, are a part of how God made us. However, a prayer of stating the truth, as Psalm 46 does, reminds us that we are not under the rule of our feelings, that we're not beholden to the judgments of authenticity. For what it is to state God's truth as truth, even if our experience in the world don't seem to line up. What is that? What is that act that we do in the faith? When we say, this is true, even though I don't feel it to be true. Um, this, I would say to you, is what basically repentance is all about, right? This is the first act, brothers and sisters, of coming to repent. Repentance begins and ends with saying no to the world and yes to God. This is true. Repentance begins based on a decision um, about what I know about God, not what I feel about God. Now, I am fully aware that some of you are probably uncomfortable with this. Um, this may sound like, so here's the psalm telling me that God is a refuge, and the way to get into that refuge is for me to just thump you over the head with the Bible, right? This is, this is true. Just get in that refuge. You'll be fine. Um, but so when we do that, though, we're falling off on the other side of the path, right? If our tendency to rely on our feelings on the one hand, then the other is this disavowal of our feelings for the truth, for for the safety of secure doctrine, right? That we've got all the truth lined up. But this misses the mark as well. So look what the psalm is using to draw us into the truth that God is our only hope. He names himself as a fortress. He names himself as a refuge. And through, this is all through nature, right? The mountains, the seas, the seas are raging. He gives us his presence by a city, in a city by, the, by a river. Well, what is all this he's using? He's using, the, the Psalms use metaphor, right? The prayer draws us into truth, not by offering us secure platitudes or seeking to poke at our feelings, but by metaphor that grinds the truth into creation. Now, just go with me on this thought here. Why does the psalmist do this? Um, Eugene Peterson, on his book on the prayers, um, takes on the power of metaphor head on, right? And, and so, Go with me here, right? Why, why is it so critical that we see the power of this metaphor? Um, it's a quote at length, so hang in there with me. Disassociated from creation, prayer drifts into silly sentimentalism or snobbish mysticism or pious elitism. The intent of prayer is not to refine our coarse materiality into pure spirit so that we do not embrace heaven with the vulgarities of flesh. The word did not become a good idea or a numerous feeling, num, numinous feeling. 
I'm still saying that wrong. I'm saying it right. Feeling or moral aspiration. The word became flesh and went to change water into wine and then wine into blood. Prayer aids and abets this becoming, taking wispy devotional impulses and making them solid in muscle and bone. Our Lord left us a command to remember and receive him in the act of eating bread and drinking wine. Things matter. The physical is holy. In the opening sentence of the, of the Bible, God spoke a world of energy and matter into being. Light, moon, stars, earth, vegetation, fish, birds, man, and woman, not love and virtue, faith and salvation, hope and judgment, though they will come soon enough. The dominant diction in this theater is metaphor. Now listen, metaphor is the witness of language that spirit and matter are congruent. Metaphor is the witness of language that spirit and matter are congruent. So what is he saying? The truth that the metaphor speaks here is that you can be as sure that God is your refuge as you can be sure of the ground beneath your feet. The walls of God's protection are as sure as the light that comes from the sun when you walk outside. And this is grounded, right? In the ancient world, life outside a city, life outside the walls meant exposure. To encircle, to enclose meant life. To enclose and have water meant flourishing, right? And consider even your own home. What is the place in your life that is your refuge physically, where you go and that is your place to be? That is your safest place. That is the place where you find the most comfort. That is the place you long to crash when you leave church and you're both incredibly hungry and incredibly tired, right? What is that place? To the degree that that is a comfort to you, that is the comfort of God as your fortress. The place you long to be. And so when you're able to ground the truth in the physical world, your feelings and affections and understanding will follow. So I don't need feelings to guide my prayer alone, nor a disembodied truth. The physical world, the streams that make the glad the city of God draws me in. So when you come to pray, and you're tempted to feel like a fraud, like I often am, you may not be suffering from a lack of emotion or even faith, but you may be suffering from a lack of imagination. The unlit fire of being present in the physical world around you, the physical flesh of God's people. And I'm, I'm just convicted as I was praying through this I don't take comfort in the presence of my brothers and sisters, the physical presence of God's people with you. The embrace of your brothers and sisters this morning is the embrace of God in your life. If a brother and sister reached out and touched you this morning and clasped your hand or hugged you or brought, was near to you or, as Ed demonstrated for us, was standing close to you, that is as real and a manifestation of God's presence with you this morning as anything else. And so you can't walk out of here without a sense of God's presence with you because he's right next to you where you are right now. And when you don't feel that, it's because you've disassociated the physical from the spiritual. 
So we gather because we need to be reminded of God's presence in our lives, the physical reality of his care and his fortress and our refuge. That's, that's why we value small groups so much. We, we circle, we create a fortress together as we circle up and pray. We, we create the presence of God. We don't create. We create the opportunity, and God's presence is there with us because he promises to be there with us. So we pray um, to, to connect this, right? And, and when you pray, the, the, the psalm also calls us to stay put. The psalm asks us not to act as though suffering and evil are not present because God is good. It doesn't ask us to see all calamity as truly a good thing hidden in a bad package. It doesn't ask us to look for a lesson in all things. Those are frauds. This is not what the Bible says. No, it points us to a faith that is deepened by our suffering, a relationship with God that is deepened because of where we are. When these things come, when we observe the world around us, we call evil, evil, and God our refuge. And this takes us deeper in faith because we're not driven off. But we are prone to wonder. We are that character. I don't know. If I'm gonna, I should have ran this by my wife. She would have had a good yes or no on this. I don't know if you know this as a, as a type of character in a movie. They've been away, right? They're, they're estranged, and they come home. And just as things are starting to get together with the family, and they're getting ready to sort of rehash and settle down, the family wakes up, they come down, they're about to have breakfast, and then that character's gone, right? The, the prodigal is always leaving at the wrong moment, right? I don't know. Does that... Does that no? Okay, never mind. All right. Um, but but this, is, this is who we are, right? We wander. Just when things are supposed to be settled, we, we get impatient. Because the city of God will not be moved. His help will come for us at just the right time, but suffering and fear and trials make us impatient. We build pathways and end arounds. We've got our contingency plans. We convince ourselves that something else will carry us in our time of need. Surely God is not a refuge to sustain me through this. I'll come back to God. I'll come back to the body when trouble is over. But the message of this psalm, of this prayer, is that God's help will come, just as it did at the Red Sea, just as we saw him again and again in the book of Genesis for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. So the question is, will you stay put in God? Will you stay put in him? Will you park yourself there with him? give you four pictures of staying put, and then I'll end because I'm already over time. Uh, real quick, staying put, the power of staying put and not being out of your place. I managed to figure out a way to coach two soccer teams this fall. So I know all about the problems of staying put and not staying put. If you've ever seen a youth soccer game, um, it is impossible, I'm convinced now, to teach young soccer players to not be obsessed with the ball. So the ball clouds their judgment, right? They don't see the value of staying put. There's nothing more glorious when the ball's on this side of the field and your guy stays in his position and they cross the ball over and he's wide open because no one else stayed put. And he just, he followed the principle. He stayed put, right? It's not happened yet for me. We're, we're still working on that. Stay put. They miss the glory of staying put. We miss the truth that God has a place for us in himself. Um, I see this in myself, right? My inability to stay put with people. Um, and, and my pattern, if you look back on your pattern when you're hanging in there with people, my pattern is I withdraw, I close off, I move on. I withdraw, I close off, I move on, right? 
Um, when suffering, suffering and difficulty come, whether um, it's the anniversary of my mother's death, whether it's the poor job my soccer team is doing and executing my game plan, I feel the same thing. Withdraw, close off, move on. I don't want to stay put with God and stay put with people. So we miss the truth that God is a refuge. He will take care of us. He is present. He is like the streams of water. But sometimes um, staying put means you have to fight to stay put, right? Sometimes it's not passive. Um, I was recently, uh, um, actually, uh, at a recent conference, I was given a picture of what it means to stay put in immense trouble. Um, A speaker I was listening to was talking about the uh, authentic faith among slaves during the period of slavery in America. Um, And it turns out that slaves um, were not just beaten into their faith, but they had a genuine, authentic love for Jesus. Um, And yet they couldn't practice it in the open. Um, And so uh, I was reading a description of this. When slaveholders left their books and Bibles unguarded, they would take them, these are the slaves, and steal away into the hush harbor where they learned how to read and plan escapes and discern parables. Hush harbors were primarily located in places like the dismal swamp or ravines, ditches, and thickets. Because of the fear of being caught and brutally punished, they never held clandestine uh, church services in the same place. Encrypted directions led believers to, these, to the sites. The first people at, uh, are at, to arrive at the meeting used to uh, broken tree bow to point toward the hush harbor. The slaves then hung quilts to create a tabernacle. In an effort to suppress the sounds, the slaves dampened the quilts excuse me, and filled the kettle with water. The surety of the truth of God, right? Yeah, imagine staying put in God. You're so desperate to fight to stay put in God that you sneak away and in the middle of the night in the woods wet the blankets to create a tabernacle of worship so that you can stay put in the truth of God. And sometimes for some of you, you're saying, I'm, I'm sitting here, I don't see God as a refuge, and, and there's a place to say, I need to fight to stay put. I need to find those people who I can stay put with. We can steal away to God as a refuge. Finally, closing. Um, and this last part, I told you it was going to get the, the, the least, but, but probably the most important. The final portion of, Psalm, uh, of the Psalm 8 through 11 creates a scene of desolation on the earth a scene in which all violent conflict is ended and the voice of the Lord calls out, be still and know that I am God. And as I mentioned earlier, this reminds us of the moment in Mark 4, 35, when Jesus calms the storm. He says, peace, be still. But it should for us evoke another moment in which violent... (laughs) Excuse me, is that cold? In which violence ends, in which God calls to those who would hear Peace, be still, and know that I am God. So I just want to end with a reading from Matthew 27. This is God's calling, peace, be still, and know that I am God. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma shavachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And here the centurion gets it, right? When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earth take and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The worship team can come forward. This is the place to take refuge in, brothers and sisters. This is the place to see a violent end to all violence. This is how we understand the city in which God dwells. This is the streams who make glad the, the, the people of God. His body broken for us. Do you know this Jesus who suffered? This is how God is our refuge. So this final picture points to staying put, to be still, and know that he is God. It, it evokes the cross, cross, excuse me. It evokes Golgotha. It calls us to be the centurion, standing before he who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself the way, the truth, and the life. So pray like this this week, brothers and sisters. Pray because God is your refuge, and he is there to be found. Amen.